This episode of Birdcast is a first for us because it's the first episode where I was fortunate enough to be in the same room as John while we were recording rather than at the other end of the M4 on a dodgy Skype connection. We were joined in the headquarters of the British Film Institute by Hammer Films archivist and Doctor Who magazine editor Marcus Hearn. Over the course of the next hour or so we got to talk about why it took quite so long to make a Quatermass film. Who else could have played Bernard Quatermass? And what exactly constitutes the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny? This is Birdcast, episode 11, Quatermass and the Pit, or Five Million Years to Earth. So the first thing probably um, best to look at when looking at arguably the most famous iteration of, of Hammer is the reason for the relatively large time lapse between the TV series and the film. Essentially, why did that happen? Why have we not gone from Val Guest directing this in 1960? Why has there been a, an eight-year gap, un- unlike the first two films and serials? There's no easy way to answer that question, or no short way to answer that question. Oh, but I've, uh, The problem, uh, what it actually came down to, was a concatenation of circumstance. I think it was... The first two Quatermass films existed in an era when Hammer was still principally financing its films itself. And so they were still principally financed through British distribution. Now, very shortly after the release of Quatermass 2, Hammer's business model changed radically. And it was radically altered by the success of The Curse of Frankenstein, which had been part sponsored by Elliot Hyman, their American partner, and Warner Brothers a major American studio. Then along came Dracula, which was part sponsored by uh, Universal in the States. And then The Revenge of Frankenstein, which was sponsored by Columbia, crucially. And Columbia were so keen to get their hands on Hammer's product that they actually entered into what would amount, uh, a deal that would amount to around 30 pictures, financing around 30 pictures for Hammer and taking um, a part ownership in the company. Is that 30 very specific types of film? No, no. Comedies, okay. uh, horror films, um, all sorts of thrillers, uh, short films and feature-length films. And they also took a stake, as I said, if you excuse the phrase, they took a stake in the, in the company <laughs> itself, which actually gave them a part ownership of Brace Studios. Now, Brace Studios, although it's revered by fans today uh, as being a legendary facility and is revered by the people that worked there, was actually something of a millstone around the neck of... Um, of James Carrera as the managing director because it was very difficult for him to sustain Bray because it had around this time 130 staff and so he was extremely keen to shift the company away from a model where he was financing the films himself and towards a model where American studios would finance the films effectively for him. When you say he had 130 staff, that's you employ anything from carpenters to cleaners yes. to just to make a Absolutely. film, all, in play, all, all employed by one central company. Absolutely. Was that, that company was Falcon Films, which right. was a, a subsidiary of Hammer. Falcon was the company that he persuaded Columbia to take a part ownership in. Now, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with Quatermass? It has a lot to do with Quatermass because by the end of the 1950s, Hammer was in a unique position 
in the British film industry because it had distribution guarantees with every single major American studio. It had distribution guarantees with Paramount, with United Artists, with Warner Brothers, with Universal, Columbia. No other British company has ever been in such an enviable position. Uh, it was in the similarly enviable position of not having to finance any of its subjects itself. Um, American studios provided the finance. Now, of course, Hammer lost out in terms of ownership partial ownership of the films. It meant they no longer 100% owned the films, but as far as uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Carreras was concerned, this was a small price to pay in order to keep Bray Studios open, to keep those 130 people in employment, and to keep Hammer in business. Why? So far, so good. However, if you are beholden to American distrib uh, distributors, you then have to provide them with subjects that have international appeal. And this was the problem for Quatermass and the Pit, because what happened between the release of Quatermass 2 and, let's say, the end of that decade was that the Americans basically took um, control of Hammer's distribution. And Hammer were very keen to make Quatermass and the Pit as a follow-up to Quatermass 2, certainly by 1960, but they could not find an American distributor that had sufficient faith in Quatermass as a subject, and because their entire business model was now entirely dependent on American distribution, this meant that Quatermass and the Pit did not happen. Why was Hammer in the situation that it had that influence coming in from America? Just because, or an alternative way of possibly putting this, is why did the Americans want, want Hammer so much? Because when Warner Brothers had financed The Curse of Frankenstein in 1956 as a one-off, mm -hmm. and it went on to release in 1957, it was nothing short of a phenomenon. It was just huge. Basically, Hammer revitalized post-war horror filmmaking. And then, because they, because they, they created this formula um, that became known as Hammer Horror. And this formula, and Quatermass played a part in this formula. I've always, mm. I've always said that there are three key constituents to Hammer Horror. Formula of Hammer Horror. The first of the first of uh, the first is horror itself, which was provided by the Quatermass experiment. The second is colour, which came along with the Curse of Frankenstein, and the third is sex, which came along with Dracula, because after the big success of the Curse of Frankenstein, they then made Dracula and they they remade Frankenstein, um, reimagined Frankenstein as a series of films that were not about the monster, which is what Universal had done, but were actually about the Baron. With Dracula, they reimagined Bram Stoker's novel as a subject that was essentially about sex, which is something that we all take for granted now. But at the time, in 1958, nobody had done that before. And so Quatermass, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, effectively created the formula that was known as Hammer Horror, um, which was, I think, principally about death and sex. I think. I know that sounds slightly crass, but that's really what the films were sold on. They were sold on that sort of colourful sex and death formula. Um, Quatermass did not fit into that formula, of course, really. Once, once Hammer Horror had taken hold in the public's imagination in the late 1950s, Nigel Neal's rather more cerebral science fiction stories suddenly looked rather far removed from what Jimmy Sangster and Tony Hines were doing at Hammer. And so this was another problem. Quatermass was not recognizably part of that colorful sex and death formula. And so I think when Quatermass and the Pit was pitched to their American partners, every single one of them turned it down. Did those partners have any knowledge of the, the Brian Donlevy films? 
I can't say that. They may well have done. I mean, the Brian Donlevy films were distributed in America, but only in a sort of relatively piecemeal fashion compared to the distribution model that Hammer were now using in the late 1950s. I mean, they were talking about major deals with Columbia and Universal and Warner Brothers, some of the biggest studios in the world, whereas the first two Quatermass pictures were principally financed by exclusive films, which is the British distributor, and uh, picked up subsequently by United Artists as well, but they did not have anything like the push that the late 50s films had. So in the space of those few short years, the whole model changed, and this worked against Quatermass and the Pit. So what finally got it off the ground? I think it was just seven years of absolute, of, of just perseverance, really, because they tried with Universal, and they tried with Columbia. I mean, Hammer's major uh, principal partner from 1958 to 1964 is Columbia Pictures. This is the, this is the, uh, the company that took um, a part ownership of Hammer in terms of running Bray Studios through Falcon Films. But they also had another uh, arrangement with Universal. Um, the arrangement with Columbia allowed Hammer to make one other film for another distributor per year. Okay. And that was Universal. And so they were locked in with Columbia, very happily locked in with Columbia from 1958 to 1964. But during this period, they could make one other film for Universal. And they pitched Quasimass in the Pit to both Columbia and to Universal. And there were drafts, uh, Nigel Neal created drafts to try to keep both of those distributors happy. I mean, um, the archive shows us that they even tried taking the name Quatermass out of it in order to try to appease their potential American distributors. I mean, one of the drafts at least is just called The Pit. As he removes the word Quatermass because it's confusing. They're, Amer they're American partners. And, it, and isn't the American title Five Million Years to Earth? Or was Ultimately, yes. Yeah. Ultimately. Ultimately, Quatermass and the Pit would not find a home with Columbia, which basically meant that Quatermass and the Pit, and did not find a home with Universal, which basically meant that there was no way to produce Quatermass and the Pit between 1958 and 1964 because that was Hammer's distribution deal. I know it sounds right. prosaic, but that's actually the way it was. It was, you know, the Americans would not give them the money for the film, so the film did not get made. It's not really um, a subject that you're talking about Hammer Horror. You don't imagine Quatermass as having heaving bosoms spattered with bright red blood, do you? But Nigel Neal certainly didn't. He no. took a very dim view of that sort of thing. The conversations I used to have with him, he was always very disappointed, he told me, with the what he called the, the literalness of Hammer Horror. He always, Neal himself always oh, told no. me that Hammer Horror was, was predicated... I mean, I'm, you know, this, this is, this is a, a story slightly against Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, who obviously we all love. But um, over the years, many of the people involved in the Hammer films, I think principally Christopher Lee, used, Christopher Lee used to point out that Hammer Horror was actually predicated on what you didn't see, and that it was about suspense, and it was about implied horror. As much as, you know, as much as I love Christopher, I'm not sure that that is necessarily borne out by what you see on screen. Hammer Horror was very much sold on shock, it was very much sold on buckets of blood. I mean, you know, a prime example is a film they made in 1963, The Evil of Frankenstein. The poster for The Evil of Frankenstein actually says, shock after shock after shock. This is the tagline in the film. How many of the Hammer Horror trailers that we see from this period, you know, uh, contain the, uh, uh, contain the uh, uh, narrated line, you will see? 
In fact, doesn't doesn't the trailer for Quatermass in the Pit, the American trailer for Quatermass in the Pit, yeah, contain the line, you will see women defiled by the aliens from Mars? Something, something well, like that. Well, also, no, you won't, no. actually, <laughs> because that doesn't happen at all. And that was the problem with Nigel Neal. His problem was very much, especially if we look at Quatermass in the Pit as a story, we actually see very little. But because um, the gradual release of information that unfolds throughout that serial brings you to a number of very horrifying and very disturbing conclusions. And so Nigel Neal was very much in the market for actually giving you horrific ideas. He was not the guy you hired to, write, to, to throw buckets of blood around or to create monsters. He was, you know, he was very disdainful of that, of that format, which was something else that brought him in, into conflict with Hammer. I think another problem was that he didn't particularly like the people at Hammer. He told me this himself. He didn't particularly like um, Lieutenant Colonel James Carreras, MBE, who was the managing director. He didn't like him. I just think I think there was a serious personality clash there. I don't think he was particularly fond of Brian Lawrence, who was another one of the company directors during this period. In fact, he told me himself that the only person on Hammer's board of directors that that he really had any respect for was Anthony Hines. He liked him a lot. And right. they had a good working relationship, but Anthony Hines was not the managing director. Anthony Hines was the executive producer, and, um, and Nigel Neal liked him, but he didn't really like the others because I think he saw a certain vulgarity in it. I think he'd also been very disappointed in certain respects about how the first two films had gone, which has been very well documented. I mean, sure, he, he wasn't involved in the first film, was he? That, that, was, the he B, wasn't. that was the BBC selling the character Absolutely. to him as well. As Absolutely. Employee, he got no. But he wrote the script. He wrote the second one, with, yeah. With, with, yeah. With, with and he think, I think, rather, again, rather unfairly, because, you know, I, I did know him quite well. Uh, I, I think that he, he, was, he rather unfairly blamed Val Guest for the second one. But, but I also knew Val as well. And Val was always very disappointed by the fact that, that Nigel Neal had, for decades afterwards, blamed him for the casting of Brian Donlevy because I don't think that Val Guest was responsible for the casting of Brian Donlevy. I really don't. I think it came from much higher up and I think that Val rather cleverly um, tailored Nigel Neal's stories towards Donlevy's screen persona. So I think actually, whereas Nigel Neal blamed Val Guest um, for, for the casting in those films, I think they actually could have been a lot worse were it not for Val's involvement. I remember years ago doing an audio commentary on a laser disc. Gosh. For I know that yeah, long ago, yeah, for I think quite some two and had to do them separately. Val Guest and Hell Nigel Neal were done separately. Because there was no <laughs> even then in nineteen ninety nine I think yeah. it was, there was no chance that these two guys were going to breathe the same air. The nearest you'll get to cut to Colin Baker and Eric Saywood having to do separate kind of commentaries there as well. But I mean I assume Don Levy was cast as so they would have an American in the Yes. Role to help the distribution of absolutely in, in, yeah yeah in I mean it came from um, yeah it came from um, their relationship with, with Robert Lippert who was an American distributor again not a major American distributor but they did want they tried to try to do everything they could to get American distribution I think that to use a television uh, analogy I think that in the 1950s they felt that if they could cast Brian Don Levy then they might get you know they might get the show into syndication mm -hmm. but by 57 58 they were they were on the networks. You know, so the idea of actually syndicating anything yeah. was, you know, uh, this was, they were in a different league entirely. I mean, Brian Donlevy is actually in some quarters quite quite well remembered, quite well loved by some 
some yes. people, you know, and and by American audiences. John yes, I don't have that. a huge problem with Brian Don Levy. I know that um, I've had discussions with Mark Gatiss about Brian Don Levy. He takes a rather different view. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I mean, I think that, like I said, I think that Val was was Brian Don Don Levy ideal for the for the uh, the role of Quatermass as written by Nigel Neal? No, he clearly wasn't. But did um, did Val Guest recognise this? Yes, I think he did. And I think he made the best of it. Yeah. And so I was, you know, it was always slightly disappointing to me, anyway, that that that, that Nightingale never quite forgave Val. So I don't think it was his fault. What is there to argue about? The purpose is quite clear, Colonel Green. My rocket group has been intended all along for peaceful scientific research. Professor Quatermass, your rocket group? Yes, mine. I brought the whole thing into being. But it is, after all, a government project. And now the government has had a change of policy. Change of policy. You're going to take it over and pervert it to this, this... Listen, within ten years, there will be permanent bases on the moon, perhaps even on Mars. Military bases. Of course. The present world situation makes that quite clear. Whoever plants them first will be able to police the Earth with ballistic missiles. So we must be in the race. Well, of course. The ultimate weapon. It always is. Gentlemen, don't you see? We are on the edge of a new dimension of discovery. It's a great chance to leave our vices behind. War, first of all. Not to go out there dragging our hatreds and our frontiers along with us. Frankly, I'm surprised and disturbed to hear such naive views still being put Naive? You've lost touch with humanity. You've been shut away too long in this ivory fortress of yours. That's your trouble. What brought Neil back to Hammer? Because if he last worked with them on Quatermass 2, this co-wrote the script, he did the witches before he did. Quatermass and the, and the pit. He did the witches, yes, yes absolutely. Which is, um, so I think it was more. But I mean, let, let's have a look. He remained on good terms with, with Tony Hines. Right. He didn't like. Um, he was angry about the first two films. And this was a this was a um, this was a grudge that he bore for decades. I remember when I got I first got to know um, Nigel Neal in the mid nineteen nineties, which was before the era of email. But um, I think I first sort of gauged the depth of his um, of his grudge against Hammer when he started sending me faxes. He started send, he, he started rewriting bits of the script, the a uh, bit of the screenplay for Quatermass Experiment, and he started faxing me pages of Quatermass Experiment screenplay, imagining that he had actually been on the set and um, taking the Mickey out of uh, Val Guest and. Um, and some of the performances in the film, and I'm, it, was, it was very amusing. But I do remember thinking, Tom, you know, is. Tom, because his first name is Tom. Tom, I was, this is decades ago, mate. Let it go. <laughs> really? Yeah, the ship sails, really, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but so that was a, that was a simmering example. Like I said, he he was um, he he bore a grudge against Brian Don Levy. He bore a grudge against uh, Val Guest. He wasn't he wasn't very fond of um, the Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Carreras, who ran the company. But he was fond of. He was fond of Tony Hines, and I think he, he saw in Tony Hines a real filmmaker. Um, and, uh, and he was on good terms with Tony Hines, so when Tony Hines asked him to adapt uh, the novel of The Witches, yes, I think he was very happy to do that. But if we look at the actual the film that resulted, it's again quite far removed from the traditional buckets of blood, heaving bosoms, um, 
Hammer Horror, isn't it? It's it, it's a, it's a thoughtful, cerebral weird horror mystery film. that goes somewhere completely different halfway through. When it's, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an argument to say that it's a sort of proto folk horror film, actually. It, there is a lot. Yeah. Which um, is, I mean, there's an argument to say yeah. that it, it lays the groundwork for the Prisoner. Uh, it, it lays the groundwork for the Wicker Man. And I think that um, that Nigel Neal was on much happier territory with a film like that. But because it was this thoughtful, cerebral thriller, Hammer had a lot of trouble with it. In fact, it came back from the British Board of Film Censors with an A certificate. It didn't even, they had to they had to persuade the British Board of Film Censors to give it an X. Because of course, if you're Hammer, having an A certificate is an absolute disaster, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, and so they, you know, they had to say so it was it was a reversal of the usual situation where they're sort of pleading with the um, with the uh, censors not to cut this thing so we can get an access. Oh, please, can you just maybe try and regard this as rather more scandalous than it actually is and give it an X, otherwise we're not going to do any business. But this is what you got when you hired Nigel Neal. I imagine some very bemused censors in, in the room. You want what? Hammer were the very first company in this country to ever request an X certificate, and that was for the Quatermass experiment. Nobody had ever done that before. It was a huge gamble on the part of Anthony Hines, the executive producer, because, as I said earlier, Bray Studios was costing them so much money. Um, it's no coincidence that the Quatermass experiment was uh, launched to um, uh, to coincide with um, with the debut of commercial television in this country, because um, cinema attendances had already started to, to dwindle following um, following the po the, uh, the new popularity of BBC television, and I think there was a real feeling amongst the board of Hammer Film Productions that. Um, that commercial television could actually finish them off, and yeah. so so Quatermass experiment was a huge roll of the dice, and I think um, the biggest gamble was Tony Hines going to the BBFC and saying, "Give us an X." Nobody, nobody had ever asked for an X before. An X had been awarded to a couple of pictures, such as um, Women of Twilight and Kosh uh, Boy, but I think in those situations next was considered a slight sort of kiss of death because most British producers thought, why the hell would you want to exclude such a potential, you know, a large part of your potential audience? Why on earth would you do that? But no, Tony Hines said this film needs to be an X. And so he set the, in so Quatermass Experiment and Tony Hines set the uh, company on a new course and set British film on a new course with that decision because of course it paid off. But um, again, this was not really not Nigel Neal's area. And you got an X by basically showing things, by being explicit. And that was not what you hired Nigel Neal for. And I think The Witches is an example of a sort of most thoughtful, cerebral thriller that, like I said, initially was granted an A. Is there some pa parallel you see now with the, the profit of doom of cinema as we go as streaming television? It's, there's, there's something, every time there's something new, be television or commercial television they often predict the death of cinema because people will stop going for what they can, what they can watch in their own homes um, yes you're possibly right but I think that I think if we look back at history we look back at what actually happened in the 1950s I think the board of directors at Hammer were actually quite correct uh, in saying that um, commercial television or in fact television as a whole represented very bad news for cinema because cinema attendances um, actually did dwindle quite markedly, I think. And uh, the, the, the British uh, producers who survive this, this recession uh, are the ones who have quote-unquote a gimmick 
the ones who have quote unquote franchises, the ones who survive and the ones who thrive, especially in this mid-budget area, are Peter Carreras and James, uh, Peter Rogers and James Carreras mm -hmm. are the Hammer Horrors and the Carry Ons. Yeah. And of yeah. course, the next huge slump occurs in 1970, 71. Yes. Which and part of that is colour television. Mm. There's another slump there, which you know it could be argued um, dealt a terrible blow to Hammer then, because they couldn't they couldn't find another gimmick during that decade to sustain them. Um, and I hate to use the word gimmick because, of course, you know, Quatermass Experiment was not a gimmick picture, but nevertheless, I mean, another thing, another thing that Nigel Neal resented about Quatermass Experiment was the way that Hammer changed the title to capitalise on the fact <laughs> that they were they had actually requested this X, whereas previous you know producers. I mean, Lewis Gilbert was, was dismayed that Kosh Boy had received an X. I think he was slightly embarrassed about it. Um, when I was working, when I, when I published his, uh, his autobiography, he certainly gave me the suggestion that he was rather embarrassed about the fact that he got an X certificate. But of course, Hammer come along with Quatermass Experiment and they're, they're actually they're brazen about it. They actually, Nigel Neal told me he was dismayed about the fact they took the E off the front of Experiment and made the X very large on the poster <laughs> just to advertise the fact that they were being very naughty boys. And uh, Nigel Neal's thoughts on The Creeping Unknown as an American title. I didn't ask him for about that, but I, I, I can't imagine he was terribly pleased. In Germany, it was called shock, wasn't it? Just called shock, as if to underline the point, which I'm sure would have delighted, um, would have delighted Hammer. But you know, somewhat again. ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. But then, enemy from space is greater mass touring. Such a generically dull, dull the creeping dull unknown. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. How do you mentioned uh, five million years to Earth, which is actually a quite an intelligent title. That's a pretty good it? title. It's I actually think. a very good title. I you think. don't like it. John. Well, you have to know the film before it makes sense. I don't well, there know. is that, yes, yeah. I suppose. But you know, it's no, not. It's not the creeping unknown, is it? Or no, shock? No, 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 it's, no, it's no, unique. No. As a title, five million years to Earth suggests something cosmic and huge and vast and. It sort of suggests cosmic horror, which Neil's actually quite good at doing in Quatermass. Mm. That sense of that that um, amoral, uncaring horror, and it, all of those things. It, it it's it is quite an American title, but it's that slightly more cerebral branch of American horror that suggests that sense of the unknown and the uncanny. It doesn't sound right. Mm. And I, I, I it, actually think it's great. Fair enough. In con because because of the time we are and the context in which I see it, I just think of Red Dwarf. When I <laughs> 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 reminds me of as well. But if uh, Nigel Neal's script for for the Hammer Pit has been in development for 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 some time um, since 1960, <laughs> I think. So I think. What, so uh, at what point did they did they get him on for the Witches? Witches was 66. Yeah. But, but, they, but they had they had been working on they had been working on Quatermass in the pit or the pit, as it was just known, on and off for years. There are several drafts. I mean, Columbia actually uh, work with them on a draft, but ultimately, Hammer cannot get it across the line because it's either the title, or the fact it's too cerebral, um, or I mean, there's no there's no sex in it, is there? Which is you know it's it's which is an important part of Hammer horror. They have to basically enter a new distribution deal before they can start to get some traction 
on this project that's now seven years old. So was it a case of he'd been working on the pit and, and while he was doing this, Tony Hines says, do you want to do the witches? I think it probably was. was. I don't know yeah. for sure, but I think it probably was, yes. I know that he liked Tony Hines and they stayed in contact and he enjoyed... Again, Nigel Neal was, was critical of Hammer's production of the witches. Um, but, you know, he was... The better I got to know him, and I, I did love him, but he was, he was critical of so many of the things that bore his name. I think and the witches was no exception. He was especially critical of the final act of the witches. I think he thought it had been mishandled. Mm. The way it descends into yeah, that yeah, kind of studio-bound hysteria. It is I very studio-bound, but that's, uh, yeah, it's, this is the, what you're working in. And it's, it's such an unusual film that tonally, you could say it's all over, but it, it, it tonally shifts to something really unexpected. Uh, yes. Yeah. But there's, <coughs> there's plenty of very good films you could look at and say it looks a bit cheap at the end. And there's, there's I, I think that the, the work of Nigel Neal could only come from a mind of someone as particular as that. I think the sense that he was particular about his work mm. is actually shown via the quality of his work as being very structured, very thought-provoking. He's very, very much a perfectionist in the way that he comes up with characters and all those things. And I don't think you can divide that from the fact that he was really finicky about the way his stuff he was, was done. He was often very critical of casting in his productions and directing. But it would be interesting to see what would have happened if he'd actually directed something himself. Mm. You know. So was there anything that of his that he really liked? Um, of the productions we discussed, because the last time, you know, towards the end of his life, um, I was involved in a very remote way with the BBC Four Quatermass experiment. And... Um, he was certainly very critical of that. Mm. He was certainly very critical uh, critical of The Witches. He was critical of Hammer's first two Quatermass films. He was critical of some aspects of the Quatermass and the Pit film. He, I did ask him, actually, of all of the productions, actually, which one he was actually happiest with. And he told me it was the fourth one. He was, oh, he was quite happy the with, Eastern with films one. the Eastern Films one. Although... He was cr very critical of the casting of John Mills. He felt that John Mills was not right for it. It's got the best production values, obviously, of all Indeed, all the TV ones. But surely he was he was positive about the Cartier productions. Oh, sorry, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the BBC Cartier yeah. productions. Oh, my God, he loved Cartier. Yeah. Absolutely he loved Cartier, right. yes. Although, you know, he was embarrassed about Quatermass 2. I remember the very first time I met him was at a screening of Quatermass 2 at the National Film Theatre and um, it was the very first conversation I ever had with him and uh, I remember asking him whether it would ever be released on video as it was then and he said oh no absolutely not because I wouldn't allow it and I said why and he said well because of the way it looks he said especially in the end the last two episodes and you know, I think that some, you know, either well, I don't know whether it was his decision or whether it was Val Guest's decision, but one area in which the film significantly uh, improves, in my opinion, on the television series, yeah. is that they do not go up to that asteroid oh, at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the Hammer version, yeah. the rocket, uh, the Quatermass Two rocket, is remote controlled. It's mm -hmm. a remote controlled bomb, isn't it? Which is yeah. basically sent up to that asteroid, and we don't, we don't see. I mean, the BBC, had just, I had no money. I'm not criticising the BBC here. They just had no money. But the thing was, wasn't the asteroid made of like chairs with blankets and things thrown over? Yeah, and and the, like the, the Dr. Pugh flying off 
as he fires the gun, it doesn't. And yeah, the whole that whole sequence of Pew and Quatermass in the in the rocket just feels it's over ambitious. Yeah. And I remember I remember um, Nigel Neal telling me himself actually. I think it was that very first meeting we had that he was embarrassed that you could see that the spacesuits were held together with shoelaces, bootlaces. I remember him saying that. Um, to be honest, it's so fuzzy in parts <laughs> anyway. You can't necessarily well, that's right. You know, see. I mean, that, that, that didn't bother me then. It doesn't bother me now. We just wanted to see the of thing. Course, you yes, know? indeed. And I think you know we're, we're we're all capable of basically suspending disbelief, especially when we're looking at something that was made so long ago. But he was, as you say, a perfectionist, and he was slightly embarrassed about that. So yes, he, he loved Cartier. He absolutely loved Cartier. Those but he was still embarrassed about aspects of those productions. Those film sequences in the TV quite nice too, highly effective. The stuff at the shell refinery and stuff like really yes really and again positive. one of his I did point out that um, when I was trying to find positive aspects of the ha first two Hammer films to discuss with him I said that uh, that uh, Val, Val Guest's work at the shell refinery is excellent and, and Neil said to me yes it is excellent but where did he get that from he got it from Cartier he got that from <laughs> Cartier he said fair <laughs> the demons it's alright they're dead been dead for a long time. What are they? Whatever they are, they're decomposing fast. This is a job for you, I think. Yes. Barbara, phone the Institute. Tell Klein. No, there isn't time. Just get him to keep everybody standing by for the biggest job they ever had. When it comes to casting uh, for Quatermass um, and Quatermass and the Pit, because the main motivation for casting Don Levy was to appeal to the American market, was an American Quatermass ever considered? Yes, actively. Um, the notes in the Hammer Archive tell us that there were, uh, I think Peter, well, uh, Peter Finch was discussed at one point, okay. but top of, top of James Carreras' list was Van Heflin mm. um, for Quatermass in the Pit, which is slightly baffling. But um, I think that, uh, I mean, it, it tells us that in that respect, James Carreras had not really significantly moved on in his own mind mm. from, from the days of Brian Donlevy, 10 years earlier. Um, even though he'd already enjoyed 10 years of incredible international success by casting Peter Cushing, for example. You know, um, I mean, Cushing was Hammer's biggest star. Mm. Um, Christopher Lee was, was not very far behind, but. Um, Christopher Lee didn't put on an American accent, did he? And neither did Peter Cushing. But I think that Carreras was, James Carreras was well aware that American distributors were extremely nervous about um, hiring British leading men. And even when he made Curse of Frankenstein in 1956, he wrote to Warner Brothers assuring them that even though he was casting Peter Cushing, there would be, quote, no trace of a British accent. He promised them that, Blimey. which of course was... Indeed, yeah. yeah was slightly economical with yeah, the truth. Yeah. Was but there ever any... Any thought given to casting Cushing and Lee as Quatermass and If there was, it was never written down. Right. Uh, bizarrely, it seems there was no thought given to casting Andre Morel yeah, either, which was, is far more puzzling. That was my, think, my next question. Because Andre Morel was part of what we sort of um, informally refer to as the Hammer Rep Company. Mm. He's not on the list either. There is a list, I can't remember all the names, but Peter Finch and Van Heffling are, are the two that they're really thinking of. Um, Andrew Keir, who ultimately got the role, um, said um, a number of times that um, subsequently that uh, he believed that Roy Ward Baker, the director, had actually wanted Kenneth Moore. 
for the role and uh, I believe this was the source of a um, sort of simmering resentment actually during the production of the film I think certainly if not during the production of the film then the decade subsequently because Andrew Keir often told people that when well, I found out that Roy Wall Baker wanted Kenneth Moore and I was some sort of substitute for him but no evidence that that was the case either um, if they did want Kenneth Moore it wasn't written down and Roy Wall Baker told me that this came as absolute news to him he told me that he hadn't considered Kenneth Moore he had worked with Kenneth Moore at rank mm. previously but very no, he was very happy with Andrew Keir and I think Hammer were very happy with Andrew Keir. When, sorry, talking about when um, Will Baker was, was, was brought on board, I mean, he's known now for doing later Hammers, like he does Scar's Dracula, doesn't he, and, and the others as well. Um, was he then part of Hammer's regular setup as a, as, a, as, a, as a go-to director? Not at all, no, but he became a go-to director as a, as a consequence. So how did I'll quote in the pit because he had been Roy Baker before this, uh, working very extensively at Rank, um, making a night to remember, mm -hmm. principally. But um, he'd come unstuck through um, conflicts with, I think, Earl St. John, amongst others, at Rank, and he'd right. made the singer, not the song. And I think he'd been, uh, he felt he'd been scapegoated for the failure of that film, which I think he felt had curtailed his film career. Um, but he was very adaptable and at that time in England there were plenty of films television series being made and so he was still working on 35mm but he was working for uh, Baker and Berman on The Saint or he was directing The Human Jungle or shows like that or The Avengers and so he was still working on film but he was working on television but he nevertheless I think principally defined himself as a film director and so I think that Hammer were his passport back into the film business after having been frozen out by the failure of um, or the perceived failure of um, Singing Not the Song and films like Two Left Feet etc um, I think that he felt that Hammer could get him back into the film business and Hammer, I think Hammer perceived him um, I think that he felt that Hammer could get him back into the film business and I think that Hammer perceived him as a um, as a legitimate director I think they were very glad to get him but I think before we talk about Royal Baker I should rewind slightly because there was circumstances changed again allowing Hammer to actually make Quatermass and the pit because certainly by, by uh, Columbia dropped out of the picture Columbia and Universal both dropped out of the picture in 1964 and by 19 by the mid 1960s James Carrera said very cleverly put together another distribution deal which would sustain Hammer. He was nothing if not a master deal maker, um, James Carreras, uh, put, together, put together another distribution deal, which was rather more complex than the others, and actually involved um, three different distributors. Um, in America, rights were carved between Seven Arts and 20th Century Fox, and in the UK, um, it was between uh, Hammer and the Associated British Picture Corporation, ABPC, which subsequently became EMI. So now, in the mid-1960s, in the era that we're talking about, he is no longer entirely reliant on major American distribution. He's in partnership okay. with ABPC and Warner Pathé, as well, uh, for British distribution. So, so for the first time, he can actually talk to British distributors. Now, he's not got... 100% British distribution, he's still principally got American distribution, 
But for the first time, he's actually got a sympathetic ear. He's got if he's going to propose Quatermass in the pit or the pit as it's called, he's actually going to um, show a script to someone who knows what he's talking about and remembers the television serials in the 1950s. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that this is when Quatermass in the Pit is revitalized. And he can suddenly, after seven years of trying, after knocking on Columbia's door, knocking on Universal's door, he can now get it past Fox and he can get it past Seven Arts in the States because he's now got the support of ABPC in the UK as well. And so it's a supposition on my part, but he's got guys on his side who can actually say, no, this thing was big. This thing was big in the 50s. We can make this work. And so I think that's how Quatermass and the Pit finally came about. Although, of course, 20th Century Fox are still not having Quatermass in the title. Mm. They, will, they will part finance the film, but one of the conditions is that you take, you take the word Quatermass out and you call it something else. Because it won't mean anything to an American audience. Exactly. Exactly. And there's but, an awful yeah. lot of persistence involved in that. I mean, you sort of wonder why didn't they just give up if they were doing so well with Dracula and Frankenstein and all the others? Um, well, I suppose. I mean, I think Quatermass in the Pit is very unusual because I can't think of many scripts. Actually, I can't think of any scripts that linger in on Hammer's back burner as long as Quatermass in the Pit. Because it wasn't the case that they suddenly got on the phone to Nigel and asked him to quickly dash this thing off in 67. It had been around for years in various drafts. And I think Dracula Prince of Darkness, which went into production in 1965, that was partly based on a Dracula sequel that had been around since about 1958. So that's the only one I can think of. But generally speaking, scripts did not hang around that long at Hammer. The, the turnover was so rapid that um, things were discarded, but Quatermass in the Pit was never discarded. Yeah, and you sort of wonder why it had that sense of commitment to it, why people cared about it enough to... Is this, a, is this a Tony Hines really, really pushing this because of, as from a personal perspective, or...? It could well have been. I don't know. I can't answer that question. Uh, it could well have been, but I know that he had to... Um, not only did they continue trying to sell this thing to various distributors, I know that I suspect it was Tony Hines also had to sell it to the board because there were there were members of Hammer's board who were not convinced about Quatermass in the Pit. In the archive we have um, Brian Lawrence's copy of Neil's I think ultimate draft of Quatermass in the Pit which at this stage, I mean, the actual, the, the actual bound script is itself just called The Pit, mm. but it, it bears a very close resemblance to what was actually produced. And um, Brian Lawrence, who um, never took a credit on any of the Hammer Horror films, but nevertheless was an extremely important behind-the-scenes figure. He was, he was uh, James Carreras' right-hand man. I think certainly when it came to matters of finance and often distribution. And... Uh, <laughs> His copy of the script is, um, has a number of queries written on it. He's clearly struggling with the pit. And, uh, with the scripts? With the script, the with, the, with the concepts okay. that are presented, because oh. I think they're so far removed from the sort of film they've been making. And my favourite comment that Brian writes on the script, is it says, uh, The Pit by Nigel Neal. And Brian Lawrence next to it, his handwritten note says, Ending a little complicated? Question mark. 
Which begs the question, how memorable then was the TV series eight years later? Well, I can't answer that. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, certainly when, you know, when, 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 people our age talk to people who remember it it seems to loom very exactly. large in their legend yeah. doesn't it very very large in fact watching it on television seemed to be a rite of passage for people of a certain age um, famously so but yet here we have a senior a senior film exec who seems unfamiliar with at least the concept of this is an adapted t- t- TV the ending script, of the yeah. film is no different from no. the ending of the television version no. is it but uh, no, no he seemed to find it a little complicated he also seems to be confused about the aspects regarding the moon yeah, but there, there's a query on there where he just writes moon question mark I'm not sure what he means by that maybe he's referring to the fact that because uh, the colonel is talking about putting missile bases on the moon isn't mm-hmm. he I think yeah. at one point yeah. maybe that's, that's how it starts that's how, well, that's yeah. how we first equate that isn't maybe, it maybe that's what he meant I don't know but uh, and so there was still you know uh, they were able to finally get this thing over the line but there was still confusion and resistance there was, there was still confusion from Fox as to who Quatermass was and what this thing was, and there was confusion even at board level that they were um, gambling this money on what was still quite a cerebral concept, I think, by the standards of mm. maybe the Dracula pictures. Yeah. I think. So, at what point is Roy Ward... Actually, why does he change his name to Roy Wardbaker? What's the... Uh, it was because of the Inland Revenue, he told me. I asked him this because I, I published his autobiography and I said, what, how, where did the ward come from? He said that <laughs> he rolled his eyes and said it was a decision that he actually regretted. But there were two Roy Bakers. There was Roy Baker, the film director, and there was Roy Baker, the sound editor. Roy Baker, the film director, was earning a lot more money than Roy Baker, the sound editor. But someone at the Inland Revenue made a mistake and apparently sent a tax estimation, Roy ba- sent Roy Baker, the film director's tax estimation, to Roy Baker, the sound editor. And he got very upset. And so Roy Baker, the sound oh editor, my. Roy Baker, the sound editor, uh, raised this with somebody. I'm not sure if he raised it at union level or whether he raised it with Roy Baker, the film editor, directly, and said something has to be done about this. And uh, it was Roy Baker, the film editor, who did something about it. Not, and then basically... Yeah, and took Ward, which was I, th- was, I think, his mother's maiden name. But it was a decision that he said he'd be regretted, really. He said, he sh- I, I, we, we ought to really found another way around it. He said, because then people thought that there was, uh, Roy Ward Baker was no, a completely different guy, person. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, o- over the years, I mean, I've read things written where people have said that uh, Roy Ward Baker changed his name because he suddenly made a shift into directing horror films. Well, it's just not true at all, you know. I think uh, Roy Ward Baker started making horror films because there pretty much weren't many other pictures that were to be made, <laughs> certainly around the late 60s, early 70s in the British, uh, British film in, uh, industry. There weren't many other opportunities. If you wanted to work at that mid-budget level... Yeah, it's either that or Barbara Windsor's um, bra flipping off. Well, exactly. And I don't think that would have been Roy's cup of tea, really. <laughs> And Ger- Gerald Thomas is that gig set. Yeah, Gerald Thomas is the, is the go-to guy for that as well. Yeah. So what point is Roy Ward Baker brought on to... to uh, I to couldn't tell you that off the top of my head, but I don't think any other director was in the front. No, OK. Um, I think that Hammer were lucky. They were lucky with Quatermass and the Pit on a number of levels. They were lucky to get Roy Baker, who was, um, well, a very, a, a very talented, a very important film director at Hammer. I mean, Night to Remember is is an incredible film and uh, that certainly would have been um, in Hammer's memory when they were employing I'm sure that Hammer were lucky to get him I wonder whether Hammer could have got James Donald 
for example, mm. who, uh, let's not forget, is the star yeah. of Quatermass in the Pit. He's yeah. top build. Uh, I wonder whether uh, the involvement of Roy Baker um, was key to actually getting James Donald. Did James Donald do another hammer? Uh, well, actually, retired, didn't he? Uh, I mean, oh, he, no, I mean, he didn't do another hammer, no. but he's one of those rare actors who actually just stop, didn't he? I'm not sure when, but at some point after this, he just retired, didn't he? But they were very lucky to get James Donald, and uh, who's very, very good in the film. He is good. Very good in the film. Um, mm. I'm not saying that Cease Linder is not good in the television version because he's very good as well as his Andre Morel, but James Donald's fantastic. And I wonder whether the, um, the presence of Roy was actually helpful. Get me, I don't know that for a fact, it's, uh, it's speculation. Uh, I think that they were uh, very lucky also that Elstree Studios, which Hammer was using at that time, because it was obliged to use that, because it was now in a distribution partnership with um, ABPC, who were part of the organisation that owned Elstree Studios. So Hammer were obliged to make their films at Elstree, but it was too busy for them, uh, which again was another stroke of luck because it meant that the production got shunted to MGM Boreham Wood, which was a much bigger studio than and Hammer were used to using it, and it had a fantastic backlog. And they get to create the entire backlog. Yes, around absolutely. The whole, around and, that, and doesn't that, that lends a film a real production quality, I think, that Roy was able to expertly um, exploit. It does, but it also has the curious effect of, and this is as much, I think, through watching it through, through modern eyes, um, because I think apart from maybe maybe the, church, the graveyard sequence where, where Slack runs with whatever, everything, that's the only location bit, everything else is mm. um, either in the underground, in the immediate outside, in the houses opposite, mm. or in the streets and the pub. Mm. And compared to the, um, the certainly in, in, in two, the Quetta Mass two, where they, they go up to, to, the, to, to, the, to the northeast, or the chase around London in, in Quetta Experiment, it feels very claustrophobic at the same time as having, having said it's set Within a, I don't think they also go to the to the Nickley Institute, but it still feels uh, very much this is taking place in a in a very very uh, limited local location. Doesn't that add to the effect that oh, without the claustrophobia yeah, yeah. actually make it better? Mm. Mm. It, it, it yes. no, no, it does. But, but you know, when I was a kid, when I first saw the film, I couldn't tell the difference between location and background. Sure, no, I just well. thought you know, and uh, you couldn't have done that at Bray. No, you know, it's, it's, it's just simply for the size. It's just, the back lot was nowhere near that big. I don't think you could have done it at Elstree, really. So I don't think the back lot was that big at Elstree. So they were lucky. And so they were lucky to get Roy Baker. They were lucky to get James Donald. Um, let's not forget Barbara Shelley, who's very good. Again, Nigel O'Neill was slightly disparaging when I spoke to him about that. Uh, he, 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 he said he preferred Christine Finn's performance, but uh, Barbara Shelley is very good. He's very, very good. And she's got a lot less to work with than Christine Finn has in the, yes. in the TV series. She has. Yeah. It's, it's a good performance. She was a good actress. And Roy, Roy Baker was, uh, was uh, uh, admired Barbara Shelley as an actress a lot. And Andrew Keir is very good. It's a well-cast film. It's oh, a well-directed film. Slatton, can you say what happened tonight in the excavation? You remember being there. You stayed to dismantle some equipment. You were hurt by something flying through the air. Do you remember objects doing that? Moving by themselves? Yeah! I had to run to get away. They were coming. Who? What were? Them. Them! No more, please! 
I remember it started, and then I could only see them, like you found down there, with their eyes and horns, and... You saw the creatures. They were alive. Alive? Hopping, like very fast, and hundreds and hundreds. I knew I was one. How did they move? Jumping, leaping. Let him alone. Where? In and out. Them big places, in and out of them. Oh, huge, right up into the sky. The sky? What color is it? Blue? Brown. Dark. Dark. It's um, it caused Hammer a few problems in, well, I think I think the two principal problems that Hammer had with the production of Quatermass in the Pit probably were with the special effects, which, if we're going to be blunt, were not good enough, really. No. And uh, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes problems with the music as well. We'll uh, we'll come on. We'll, we'll certainly come on to, to both of those yeah. things. One question I wanted to ask about still on uh, where we're Baker is in a company like Hammer how much power does the director have over casting? Over casting? Yeah. Um, Can he get in who he wants or despite Well there was, there, was no, there, was, there was no place um, at Hammer for an auteur that's for sure. Terence Fisher who was uh, probably Hammer's most iconic director and I use that word advisedly uh, was probably Hammer's most iconic director, once claimed that he never got to cast any of his pictures at all, with the exception of, I think, uh, he remembered having cast Charles Gray in The Devil Rides Out, but couldn't, but struggles to come up with any more examples of, of actors he'd actually cast himself. I find that hard to believe, um, but there was certainly, uh, they certainly relied on, on Stuart Lyons, their casting director, a lot. But I think that there was no room for a maverick, there was no room for an auteur, because you couldn't be an auteur director at Hammer because the auteur was Hammer. Hammer was the auteur. Which I think, again, brings us back to this problem we were saying earlier, that certainly by 1958, 59, when you would have, uh, certainly by 1960, when you would have expected Quatermass in the pit to appear, the Hammer's got, the Hammer's got such a sharply, clearly defined house style that, Hammer, that Quatermass in the pit does not fit into mm. You know, which is another problem there. Um, they, I'd imagine, because I didn't, they were so pleased to get Roy Baker, ranks Roy Baker, you know, the man who directed A Night to Remember, I would imagine he was cut rather more slack. Yeah. I don't know. So in terms of the, the lists that were drawn up that, 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 that you've seen that ultimately uh, led to, to, to Andrew Kier's casting, Baker would have been, if not the only one, that would have been the prime mover in, in, in drawing those. I don't know. I can't answer that. He certainly told me that he was very happy to get Andrew Keir, which suggests to me that he didn't choose it. Um, so I don't know. Andrew Keir was certainly a presence in Hammer films at that period. Not a leading man, no. I dare say. But I mean, um, Roy very much perceived that James Donald was his leading man. It's the top billing. Isn't Andrew Keir? I mean, he'd been on Richard, uh, in Prisoner of the Andrew Keir's got a tiny role in, I remember, hasn't he? Yes, I think he does. Yes, he's, got, he's, got, he's, he's one of the he's, he's, one, yes. he's one of the crew. Yes, um, but then again, so does Kenneth Moore. You see, he's got a big role in Night to Remember, doesn't he? Which may have been the source indeed, of these yeah. rumours. You know, perhaps he felt very different like Kenneth Moore in in Night to Remember. <laughs> in there as well. Um, actually, just I'm not sure actually that yeah. Kenneth Moore would have been. Kenneth Moore was wonderful. Mm. 
I'm not entirely sure he'd have been quite right for this actually because I'm, you know, I'm recalling Nigel Neal's criticisms of John Mills. I think that he maybe would have given a John Mills type mm, of performance. Yeah. I mean, Neil told me that he felt that um, John Mills was wrong for the fourth Quatermass because he said that Mills' speciality, and I think he was saying this much more in hindsight, but he said that Mills' speciality was in what he described as sort of um, sort of put upon civil servants or or Mr. Polly type roles, etc. Whereas yes. Quatermass ultimately needed to be somebody who had authority. He needs to he needs to walk into a room and be the smartest guy in the room and to assume ultimate authority over the situation. Which you could say that Brian Don Levy did actually. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, that's very true. I don't think that Neil would have agreed with And Keir does have right, a lot of belligerence in his role. All the way, all, all, yes. all, all, oh, certainly when it comes to the colonel, yes, yeah. he's, um, he, he's, his disdain for the colonel is clear from the outset. Yeah. Uh, there's, isn't it? there's that lovely sequence when uh, Julian Glover gets out of the car and goes to shut the door, and because he thinks uh, Quatermass will stay in the car, but Quatermass is already getting out and he has to stop. And then they, there's a, and then which is brilliant on the, on, on podcast, uh, which is just a brilliant sort of um, sort of shrug and a you know and a sardonic grin between between Julian Glover and Andrew, Andrew Keir. Presumably that was that was worked on. It's, it, 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 mm. it's lovely. It speaks volumes. Mm. And one thing about this script is just how efficient it has to be because they've got you know an hour's less time, yes. more yes. than an hour's less. Yes, time. We haven't talked about Julian Glover, who's who's yeah. rather young for the role, but he, he's very good. He is, yeah. 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 Described himself as the obligatory asshole when he was yes, yeah, right. come, which is right. as, okay. as, 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 yeah. as his role. But yeah. his death sequence is is oh, really horrible. Fantastic. Like he just stands there. He slowly kneels, and then the next time you see him. It's just a child, it's a child yes. and that's yeah. one area where the the, the makeup is excellent. Obviously, is it uh, Anthony Busher in the in the TV series? They're yes. far more limited in what they can do. It's the smoke, yes. sort of smoking yes. face there as well. Although I do, I, yeah. I watched the um, I watched the, um, the, the the Blu-ray of the TV series. I think last year, and you've spoken to Toby Haydo. We have, yeah, yeah, about yeah, and what, what a fantastic restoration. Oh, it's amazing. And I know that Toby was part of the team, yeah. wasn't he, that worked on yeah, that. But what a is. brilliant job. And I think the restoration of the television uh, version really brings it home what a, how clever um, Cartier was. Because when you watch the television version, you realise it's such a sophisticated tapestry of film sequences, pre-recorded sort of studio bits and studio bits. And it's just, it's incredible how on earth Cartier was able to orchestrate all of that one of the absolute heroes with, a, with, with the limited resources mm, available to him incredible one of the absolute heroes of that uh, is Clifford Hatz is the yes. designer because a couple, yes. week, couple of weeks ago I went to the um, Kubrick exhibition at, at uh, the, 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 the design museum yeah, yeah. and it had the 2001 sets where the monolith is found is found on the moon wow. and you look at the shape of it and where the the, um, the stairs come down and you know the, 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 the use of space and I mean, it was the first thing I thought of was quite Mass in the Pit TV series. Right. I was like, oh, and I was thinking, when that was made, was that an influence? I don't know, yeah. couldn't ask, but very, very possibly yeah. yeah. as well. One thing we keep coming back to is how well those TV series have aged and how they still hold up yeah. as the solid pieces of drama. And conceptually, I mean, given the limitations, it's a mm. miracle. It's as, yeah. it's as good as it is, but, but, but conceptually, they're, they're, yes. they're all well yeah. and yet I think the first two are very much locked within their time yeah aren't they Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 magnificent as they are are very much locked within contemporary concerns about well, the first one about 
what on earth would happen if you put a man on the other side of the atmosphere? Yeah. Nobody actually knows. Mm -hmm. And the second one about is a satire on the whole Newtown phenomenon, isn't it? With, um, a, with a healthy bit of uh, um, uh, Cold War paranoia. Uh, Cold War paranoia as well. as well. The fourth yeah. one as well, with the yeah, planet people true, and so yeah. on, so. is kind of um, a, a product of its time. And these are not criticisms at all. No, I'm just saying that they're original their time. The third one is the one that people keep coming back to, I think, because its its themes its its very profound themes are universal and to a degree timeless. As long as there are racists in the world or racism, you know there will be something. You know there is there is uh, uh, in the pit will speak to you. Absolutely. Also, oh, oh, I was just saying, can we talk a little about the power power of that? I mean, I think as um, for a lot of us, the hammer Quatermass in the pit, it being broadcast more than. The serial ever was on television, mm. or um, the first two films, or indeed the first two films, is Certainly our access point to Quatermass. It was mine. It was mine too. Yeah, and my father made me watch Quatermass in the Pit as a kid because he remembered the TV series. He remembered Tony Hancock doing his satire on Quatermass oh, in the right, Pit yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. was that was that the Scarlet Capsule? Was, it, was that the Goons? That was that was the Goons. The, yeah. the Goons did the Scarlet. Yeah, well, the, the, the horror serial. The horror serial. The horror, horror serial. They called it, which has the brilliant um, the uh, Acton on the bomb because it's, it's reverse, isn't it? He finds a bomb and thinks it's a Martian That's spaceship. Right, yes. It's reverse yeah, the plot, yeah. which has Acton, yeah. which uh, yeah. Tony Hancock says yeah. is, ju is Martian for Acton. <laughs> yeah. Arthur, Neil, Neil told Martin. me one of the last times I saw him actually Neil, Neil told me he was quite happy with Goons and I think yes. he liked Hancock as well he said he, he, he told me that he drew the line at Charlie Chester mm. who wanted to do Professor Quite a Mess oh. he said he yeah, drew, drew the line there he said. there's a nice chap on Twitter called his handle is Professor Quite a Mess Quite a Mess yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's but, well. but yeah I mean watching it as a kid coming to it as a kid it's so unlike any of the other science fiction or horror films. You know, it's not like a Hammer film, you know, because even as a kid, I knew that. Mm. I had the picture in my head of bright red blood spattered on heaving bosoms. You know, that's, you know, whether that actually happened in any Hammer film ever, it doesn't matter. We do have Barbara, we do have Barbara Murray's cleavage probably making an, a, a, a greater appearance than it deserves on the poster. They, they try to. They yeah. try. They try to. They well, try you to will. You will see women will defiled see by the aliens yeah. from Mars. No, you won't. Unless you count sort of like um, well, profound psychological disaster mm. fashion as a defilement, but that's not what they mean. Well, yes, yeah. yeah. But you know, you see it on TV, and it's weird. I remembered so much. You know, I hadn't. I had only rewatched it again recently, and I watched it first time as a teenager. Yeah, me too. Uh, my, my father's behest and he's like you'll like this my my father is respons was responsible for a lot of my tastes and so many things I remember about it good and bad I remember Judy and Glover's death sequence I remember the sort of great sets the colour of it I remember also the really crap aliens on sticks in the uh, in the Wild Hunt sequence. Wild Hunt sequence as well. And, I, I, you know, that, that was actually one of my abiding memories of it. I remember that bit being a bit rubbish looking, even as a sequence. How do you think people would feel if those sequences were to be replaced now? I'm just putting it out there. 
well, Repla- replace because you know there was a special edition of The Devil Rides Out. Yes, with 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 CG enhancements. Indeed. Oh, well, I see. How do you think people would feel about quotes, Hammer's quotes and Mass in the Pit being as enhanced? long as the original sequences are still yeah. available as well as an optional extra? How do you feel about Kinder? Kinder, the Doctor Who series. Yeah. Oh, you mean replace CG CGI replacements? I think it's an improvement. I think it's done sympathetically. Uh, yeah, uh, I but I was, you know, I was, I was part of the team that, again, in a remote way, that worked on the CG enhancements for *The Devil Rides Out*, and I think right. they, I think they enhanced the film. Right. So I, th- I think as long as um, it can fit to within, it doesn't look ridiculously obvious that it, that it was done at a completely different time, and as long as I think the original bits are uh, are also available to be to be seen, so that people can watch it as and they want. Um, I wouldn't have a major objection, I don't think. I think the thing about Quotemass in the Pit, it is such a magnificent film, Yeah, I think, and it is compromised in the eyes of so many people by the way the special effects look. I do wonder, and I'm thinking out loud here, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen, I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking out loud. If it did have different special effects, I wonder if it would bring it to a new audience who would actually appreciate its themes and its scripts, etc., because you no longer have that stumbling block of the way those sequences actually work. I mean, as long as it wasn't done in the George Lucas style, in that sort of incongruous, I'm going to shoehorn in a CGI alien in the background of... No, no. But that, that doesn't happen. I don't know if, if, if either of you seen the, um, the special edition of The Devil Rides Out. Yeah. No, no that doesn't happen. Yeah. In the, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It works the Devil Rides Out doesn't, yeah. doesn't introduce anything that's not there in the original. No. It just does it It just does it, does it. does it. Yeah, it does it better. I think and that's what you'd have to do, right? I think... And I think something like the Wild Hunt sequence, which you could make look grainy and off anyway, yeah, sure. it would be really easy to hide the yeah. fact it was CGI. I mean, you mentioned wrong. Kinder earlier. What do you yeah. think of that? Oh, I loved it. I right, okay. genuinely love yeah. the CGI snake in okay. Kinder, and I think it makes the whole thing better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and possibly opens it out to a new audience who could appreciate oh, its, its, its depth. Oh, right. Okay. Because it's... Who didn't but laugh at the snake? Obviously. No, exactly. Right, and and and, um, and Kinder was the the one Doctor Who serial that made me love Doctor Who. Right. As at the age of seven. Wow. Okay. You must be a very sophisticated seven-year-old. But uh, yeah, Kinder is Kinder is, is wonderful. It's it very was good. my favourite. And I think it's I think it's it more now. wonderful now. So yes, yes, exactly. What were the do you think the the origins of the issues they had with the the, the special effects sequence? If we're talking specifically about the design of the of, of the Martians, or the um, well, this was made around the same time as Devil Rides Out. The yeah. special effects in the Devil Rides Out were made by was, were were, um, were created by different people, a different team, and it's a rather different situation. Um, I don't actually know. I can't answer that. Uh, I don't think that Hammer necessarily paid. It seems to me that as the years went on, certainly from the late 1950s through to the 1970s, in some respects it seems as though whereas Hammer's special effects ought to have evolved and improved, there are some instances where they actually um, get less impressive as the years go on. I mean Dracula is a case in point really. The first Dracula, which was released in 1958, has a magnificent disintegration sequence Mm. right at the end of it. and. I don't think any of the subsequent sequels can actually match it. Even the sequels they're making in the early 1970s, the disintegration sequence in the very last Dracula they made, Standing Rights of Dracula, 
It's not as impressive as the one they did in 1973. It's not as impressive as the one they made in 1958. It's so, something to do with the relationship between the value of money and the amount of money they actually It could well be. Budget. I don't have an answer for it, I'm afraid. I don't know. Because I was going to ask, and I, I think you already answered in the in, in the negative, if it was anything to do with things like uh, Devil Rides Out or Quentin Mess in the Pit having a different challenge to the, 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 the gothic horror. The, the, the Devil Rides Out, out the effects on The Devil Rides Out were, were created by um, Peter Stainer Hutchins, who actually was a rights holder of okay. the film. And so that's how he, um, or the rights holder of the property, so that's how he came to get the job to do the effects. The effects in Devil Rides Out are, uh, this, is not a, this is not a criticism of, 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 of Stainer Hutchins, the effects in The Devil Rides Out in several sections are clearly just not finished. The angel, of, the angel of death finished. Yeah, the angel of death. You know, the mat work is just not completed, yeah. and I yeah. suspect that somebody at Hammer probably said, "Right, your time's up. Yeah, we need you know, it now. we spent yeah. the money. We've yeah. spent the money, or you've run out of money, and that's it." You know, um, I think that when they worked with um, more dis um, more renowned independent effects houses, such as the ones run by, say, for example, Jim Danforth who was Oscar nominated for When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, or Ray Harryhausen on uh, One Million Years BC. You didn't mess with those guys as much. No. Although there was, a, there was quite a lot of conflict between Hammer and Jim Danforth, actually. But I, you, you, you didn't mess with Ray Harryhausen, I'm sure, because he was so renowned. Maybe uh, Les Bowie is a different matter, possibly, working on, the Slough working on the Slough trading estate. It's a slightly different matter. And maybe he just wasn't given the time he needed, maybe he wasn't given the money he needed. I just don't know. But certainly, um, you know, one of the one of the golden rules at Hammer was that you did not go over schedule. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the one of the legends of one of the legends of Bray, of Bray Studios is is Terence Fisher. Um, is Anthony Hines visiting the um, uh, one of the sound stages at uh, at uh, Bray Studios uh, and talking to Terence Fisher on uh, the Brides of Dracula, which is the first sequel. And uh, Tony Hines says to Terence Fisher, "Well, you know, how's it going, Terry?" And Terry's going, well, you know, I've got a few problems, you know. And uh, Tony Hines says, what's the matter? He said, well, we're over, we're over schedule, Tony. We're over schedule. And so legend has it that Tony Hines said, uh, Terry, give me the script. And so Terry hands, up, hands over the script. Tony Hines flicks through, licks his fingers, flicks through the script, tears a bunch of pages out and hands it back to Terry Fisher. And Terry Fisher says, what are you doing? And then Tony Hines says, there you go, Terry, you're back on schedule and goes back to his office. I don't know if that even happened or not, but that's a story that was told quite a lot at Bray Studios. I know that around the time they're making Quatermass in the Pit, The Lost Continent is shut down, simply because it's gone over schedule. Wow. So um, it wasn't made? Well, no, it was, it was, it was finished. Well, it was, oh, well, they, they, they basically made something from what they had, but James Carreras sent, right. sent uh, Roy Skeggs' production manager onto the, onto the, uh, uh, to L Street, onto the soundstage, to shut down the production, um, wow. and to shut down his own son, who is making the film, Michael Greer, to shut. Uh, uh, a few years later, when Robert Young is making Vampire Circus, Hammer shut it down. The film he hasn't even finished shooting it, and they shut it down, and they cut the film together from what they have. So I'm not saying this is what happened with the special effects on Quatermass in the Pit, but uh, I am saying I think we probably all agree that they would have probably benefited from a bit more time. The, the time schedules have sort of existed on every level, didn't they? I remember seeing an interview with Jimmy Sangster where someone comes to him and says, we're making a new Frankenstein movie. We're doing it in 11 weeks. He says, oh, that's tight. Who's writing that then? It's like, you are. You are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this, again, goes back to the way that the finance model worked at Hammer because Hammer would receive 
the way it worked when you were working for American distributors was very often that Hammer would receive a set amount of money to make a film and then it would be Hammer's responsibility to bring the film in beneath that budget because the difference between the money that the Americans are giving you and the amount of money that a film costs is your margin that's your profit because you will not always have profit participation in the distributed picture not always sometimes you will but sometimes you won't which means that if you eat into that margin or perish the thought the thing ends up actually costing more than the American distributor has given you <laughs> you're you out of sunk, pocket yeah. yeah you're sunk before the things even released and so I think that you know to basically give uh, hammer management the benefit of the doubt it was um, they, they could not allow that situation to ever arise because you know it's a life or death situation for an independent company again I'm not saying that happened on Quotemass in the pit but you know certainly those effects could have done a bit more time was it um, a budget consideration or a, a, a narrative consideration to move uh, the particularly since you have that have the backlot but move the primary set from being a building site to an underground uh, I can't answer that I don't know why that happened it may have been because of the backlot right it may have been but I can't answer that I actually prefer the underground it's, set it's very effective I think the whole Hobbs end thing which yeah. was clearly done with Neil's participation and yeah, his consent sure. is actually one area where the film improves on the television serial I think is this the first although time? I love them both yeah, yeah is this the first time we've seen the London underground as a horror setting I mean, now you look at you, well you, you yeah. famous sequences. It's before Deathline, isn't it? It's before it? Deathline. It's before yes. Everyone London. Uh, yes. Creep, even as a recent films that have done yes. it as well. But I, I can't think of anything before this. You could well be right. right. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and it's so familiar, but so mysterious. When is the web of fear? Just after they shot this, I would say. Just after they shot it. Okay. Well, the Web of Fear is. You're a Doctor Who fan, aren't you? I can tell. <laughs> He's a Doctor Who fan. I just really like it. Yeah. <laughs> Who recognised you on site? So Weber fears what the autumn of '68, right? Yeah, yeah. So and it's very effective. Works very, very yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So very, it's, very well. This is this is this is before that. But it's so it, the Weber fear is so effective. You don't even stop. It doesn't have that. <coughs> it doesn't have that kind of um, backstory that uh, quite some. I mean, because I think that that, that Neil Neil rationalises the underground the London underground setting, which is an innovation for the film, isn't mm. it? He rationalises it very well. You don't question it at all, and I think Douglas Canfield in *The Web of Fear*, just uh, because he's so persuasive, so compelling about the way he presents it, you don't actually stop to think, why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's exactly. what's the, what's the, what the, Why the, are they there? The plan makes no, what, what yeah. sense? In fact, it's I think yeah. Stephen it, it takes Stephen Moffat to rationalise the underground setting, doesn't it, in *Web of Fear*? It, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Many, yeah. many years later. <laughs> yes. God bless him. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's so good. Exactly. Yeah. But Neil thinks about it, doesn't he? He thinks about it very carefully, and my God, it works well. It, it does, it? and you have that lovely bit where, um, in replacing the, the the press conference of the of the TV series, you have that kind of impromptu thing where they bring the. Oh, Sheila Staffel, who just, just died, amazing. Yes, God, God rest her uh, soul. Uh, She's uh, great, uh, isn't she? She's very good. Absolutely. Even smaller roles yeah. like that are very carefully considered they by are, Roy, Be they Roy are. Baker. They're, they're, they're really well done. But there's that just, uh, the reason I mentioned it was just in the middle of it, you have uh, sort of uh, Rooney's nervous and he's doing his prepared prepared speech and he has to stop because a train goes past and they all yes. remember the job. And it's, yes. It looks awkward and it looks yes. amateur and it's it's really, it really, it really, it really, it really I, I, I love the way that James Donald eats chocolate. 
Okay. When he's annoyed because he unwraps the chocolate and eats chocolate, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he does. Those lines, yeah. you know, it's nice. a detailed performance. It's a director who's thought about it very carefully, working in close partnership with a screenwriter who's completely on board. This is not a Valguez situation. This is not a Valguez Nigel Neal situation. No. These two are working together closely on this. That's interesting. They play. It's, isn't it implied in the TV series that Rudy has a drink problem? So maybe this is a. Obviously, I don't know. Yeah. Um, perhaps this is a. a, a and go back to the underground thing the underground of course is I think part of the beauty of it is that the underground is, fun, is a fundamentally uncanny thing mm. it's a strange piece of geography as someone who doesn't live in London I always marvel at the way that people in London both depend upon the underground in a way mm. to travel distances that I wouldn't think twice about walking in you know far off Wales and yes also, the way that the underground's geography is not the same as the geography above. Um, years ago, I was hired by um, a role-playing games company to produce a, a fiction about strange geography, and I based it around an underground map where I changed the all I literally did was change the change the names of the underground stations. Yeah, yeah. And it made it that that strange geography, I think, goes beyond time. It goes beyond the sort of um, frame of Quatermass in the Pit as an artefact of the 50s and the 60s simultaneously and makes it something that we can look at now and still relate to now yes. because that strange yes. geography is still part of the experience, yes. particularly if you're yeah. in London. I think it, it's, it's more effective. I think it's more effective than the television serials building site because it presents you with a, a juxtaposition of the alien and the very familiar. Most of us don't spend time on building sites, do we? Especially commercial no. building sites of the sort that are in, okay, if we're having a house extension or something, and then maybe. Sure. But most of us do not visit building sites of the sort that are depicted in the television serial. Many of us, certainly those of us who live in London or ever visit London for work or for tourism, have spent time on the London Underground. Some of us use it all the time. And I think that juxtaposition of the capsule the unfamiliar alien capsule within something that's completely familiar works exactly the same way as the Yeti, the robotic Yeti in the London Underground in the Web of Fear yeah. as well. And in, in many ways provides a, a template. In that way, Nigel Neal provided a template for so much of early 70s Doctor Who, which was predicated on unfamiliar alien things uh, trying to invade the home counties. A Yeti on a lavatory in Tooting Beck, whatever. He was probably, you know, partly thinking of quite a mess in the pit. Exactly, yeah. Um the, the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny. Yes, you've just yeah, phrased that much better than I was able to. You must, you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Is, absolutely. It's central to this sort of thing. And it very actually effective. is why why Quatermass and the Pit <coughs> is often listed among folk horror. As a thing. Oh, is it? Right, okay. Yeah. So Adam Scoville lists Quatermass in the Pits as an example of folk horror. Right. Okay. I suppose it's, I mean, yes, you're stuck in, uh, in that most urban of environments in, in, in the underground, but the, I mean, actually the, the, the underground is referenced in the TV series, isn't it? That there was, when they're looking at past examples of hauntings in oh, the yes. area, yes. there's an example, the last one was in 1927 during an underground extension. Um, yes. And, yes. Then, and then they go back and they talk about uh, you know when trees are cut down or yes. when when the when the ground is dark and yes. it's said whenever the the ground is disturbed. So although yes. it's in it's in very much in the middle of suburbia, I mean, we, we, isn't it? 
we're in meant to be like, like Notting Hill. That's where it's that's where it's implied it's implied implied over to be. But yet it's very much about the landscape and about man's relationship to the landscape. I think that's what it's just the landscape's been built on since. Yes. And I mean, it is a haunting. I mean, even though we have the explanation of the haunting as ancient astronauts predating Eric von Däniken by a couple of years, in fact, mm. um, we have this haunting, this idea of history being unresolved, sitting there waiting to have its business with us, mm. to come back. And it is as much a haunting as any ghost story mm. ever, mm. Uh, as we could ever imagine. And that haunting, again, is part of the peculiar power, because even if we don't buy the whole thing about alien astronauts that are like bugs on sticks, we still buy the real power of a haunting that, when seen up close, can reduce a man's face to ashes. What did you see? I don't know. You, you said a figure. Yeah, so, sort of crooked. It, it, it went straight through. Yeah. It was horrible. Horrible! With its head tucked underneath its arm. Oh, shut up. I, I did see something, sir. I did, honest. It, it was little. The figure was small, like a hideous dwarf. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, what made you say that, miss? How did you know? And the whole haunting aspect is underlined by the very good George Woodbridge sequence, isn't it, with the policeman? Yes. yes. It was kids that did it. Kids, yeah, did, kids it. that did it. And, they, yeah. and it's probably made more of it in the TV series simply because you've got you've got you've got much more time. But the scratches, the idea that um, whatever this haunting is, it can hurt yeah. you. It, it has a physical. It has a, it has a physical element. It's, yeah. it's, it's genuinely scary. And that most uh, you know, you know, the Bobby on the beat, that most dependable yeah. sign of sign of Britain is is yeah. terrified. But this is one aspect of Quatermass in the Pit that actually brings it uh, firmly firmly aligns it with Hammer Horror. Because although there were a number of thematic differences between Nigel Neal's work and the work of Tony Hines and Jimmy Sangster and so on at Hammer, um, one thing that I think I imagine that they all could have agreed on is that there was no such thing as the supernatural. Because this is one of the uh, one of the messages of Quatermass in the Pit is that although this creature may have informed our perception of the devil, Although the policemen may believe that there are ghosts, etc., and the vicar, uh, and, and the vicar as well, there is actually a rational, scientific explanation, or pseudo-scientific explanation, for what's been happening. And this is very much the message of the Hammer Horrors as well, because generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, Hammer did not make films about the supernatural. Now, some people listening to me might be. You know, surprised to hear that because they might think, "What about the Gorgon?" Or, or uh, yeah, there are exceptions. But if, if we take a look at the at the films that were um, the two films that, in many ways, were the were the foundation for Hammer Horror, Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, they both have very strong science fiction underpinnings. Um, Curse of uh, Frankenstein, one could argue, was the original science fiction of story. Course, yes, and of course. There's nothing supernatural, really, in The Curse of Frankenstein, because uh, Baron Frankenstein makes a monster. He, he performs his, his blasphemous actions by employing science. And even in Dracula, one of the changes 
that Jimmy Sangster makes to the story is that he actually removes a lot of the supernatural elements. There is a sequence that includes, um, uh, there is a very detailed sequence that includes uh, a blood transfusion example where he tries to save somebody who's actually been bitten by Dracula and then uh, Van Helsing, uh, there's a section where Van Helsing records his, his memoirs as it were onto a phonograph machine and describes vampirism as a disease. Which is in Bram Stoker. Right, okay. So, but no point, but, but, uh, but, but Sangster does not, um, does, does not go down the universal route of having him transform into a bat, for example, because Helsing, when he's actually, Van Helsing, when he's recording that thing into the phonograph, one of the things he actually says is that, you know, they can't turn into bats. This is a myth. You know, vampirism is a disease. This idea that they can, you know, transform themselves into other animals. How will we forget that? subsequently. But nevertheless, at that point, science was very important to them. So this is one element where Quatermass and the Pit is very firmly aligned with those aspects of Hammer Horror. And this is something that Anthony Hines may have found sympathy with. The idea that there is not necessarily, it's not the devil necessarily that's actually terrorising these people. There are no ghosts in that house, despite what people actually think. There is a scientific or pseudo-scientific explanation for what's going on. And Hines would have appreciated that. And, I, and, Hi, and Neil, Neil and Hines, if they had a conversation about this, would have found themselves in sympathy with each other on those on those. But points. what's great about that is that it is at least as scary, if not more so, because yeah, you know, historically, absolutely, because it's real. Yeah, yeah, historically, people only tell ghost stories in a society that doesn't believe in ghosts as default. Right. Before that point in folklore and history, you have stories with ghosts in. Yeah. But yeah. the ghost story exists when you don't believe in ghosts right but we believe in science yeah we believe in those things and yeah. science can hurt us yeah Frankenstein uh, Peter Cushing's Baron Frankenstein does not believe that he's committing any form of blasphemy uh, Van, Van Helsing does not believe that vampires can turn into bats and Professor Quatermass does not believe there are ghosts in that house can we say a bit I'm just sorry but I'm also very conscious we're gonna have to wrap up um, can we talk a bit about uh, the music and sound design for mm. for Quatermass and the Pit? Famously, Tristan Carey. Well, it, it would be simplistic to say Tristan Carey does the music. Hmm, certainly would. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about the history of the of scoring this, this film? Tristan Carey was hired to um, to score the film, and he was, I believe, um, pressurised to create something that was predominantly electronic. I mean, he'd had. Um, He'd had experience with this before, of course. He'd, he'd created the music concrete scores for Christopher Barry's Doctor Who serials, known to be the Daleks. Mm -hmm. Barry had known him from Ealing in the previous decade. And uh, there was a sense that this needed something similar, I think. But I don't think that, well, I know that, uh, that Philip Martel, Hammer's musical supervisor, found it impossible to basically marry um, the electronic music concrete with the more traditional um, orchestral scores and as a result we hear very little of the electronic score within the film uh, and in fact um, having done all this work under a very very tight deadline poor old Tristram Carey found himself further sidelined when uh, Martel decided to create uh, something of a patchwork quilt of a score by bringing in library music and I think actually composing some small pieces of music himself which I'm not sure he did in any other film, I could be wrong wow. there, but it's certainly extremely rare that Martel actually composed anything himself. We only know this from looking at the music cue from the music cue sheets, which actually show us um, that Martel is in there. Uh, I mean, notably, the end credit music is not by 
Tristram Carey or Philip Martel. It's by Dennis Farnan, I think. It's called Deserted Harbour, isn't it? And it works brilliantly. But goodness knows how many decades I've been watching this film without realising that. It's, um, but so yeah, they had a problem with Carey's score. Um, I think that they asked for something that was just not really sustainable. And I think Carey was uh, maybe as confused as Martel was ultimately about why they'd asked for that. It was a difficult experience for, um, for, for Carey. Who brought Carey on board in the first place? I think it would have been Philip Martel, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Because this is a sci-fi film, as opposed to quite possibly because of his Doctor Who reputation, somebody decided it needed electronic music. But that stuff's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, very tricky. And they end up using it. um, They using they end up using the fragments that they retain as texture, don't they? Really? Yes. Um, Whereas some of the Doctor Who serials are rather braver than that, and are actually almost entirely scored with that music concrete. Yeah, and some of it is. um, it's reused as well in serials that involve as well. It's yeah. quite, it's quite difficult, difficult music. It's quite yeah. avant-garde. Avant-garde, yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. How successful was Creator Mass in the Pit? In okay, I'll, 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 I'll qualify, I'll qualify that. Initially successful was Quatermass uh, As far as I know, it was successful. I don't think it. Um, it certainly didn't. Uh, it certainly didn't, didn't do any harm to uh, Hammer's relationship with Fox in the States. Hammer's relationship with Fox came to an end very shortly afterwards, but it was through no fault to Quatermass in the pit. Uh, I think Hammer's relationship with Fox um, came to an end partly because of Fox's, uh, Fox perceived that The Devil Rides Out and The Lost Continent, the two, De- uh, two Dennis Wheatley adaptations, um, uh, did not meet their commercial expectations. Uh, I think, in fact, Fox were extremely confused about The Devil Rides Out full stop. They thought it was a Western. Um, <laughs> when Hammer told them, when, when Hammer told Fox they were going to make the the, uh, the Devil Rides Out and presented their budget of some which was something in the region of a quarter of a million, uh, Joseph Sugar, one of the uh, uh, executives at Fox, infamously sent a memo back to Hammer saying that's just that's too much money for a western. <laughs> you make it cheaper than that. Um, but so um, yeah, I, I I don't believe that the Quatermass film did anything to sour that relationship. And in fact, I think it possibly energised, uh, galvanised Nigel Neal to, to go ahead with the fourth one, which he, he started work on it quite shortly afterwards, didn't he? Because, yeah, it took a long time for the fourth one to get onto the screen, didn't it? Even longer than the film of Quatermass and the Pit, I Was think, yeah. that intended to be... I mean, that, that was originally going to be a, a fourth BBC series, wasn't it? Was, it was, and yeah. they in fact started work on it, didn't yeah, they? I think I in around 1970? 1970, 70, 71, I think, yeah. 70, yeah, with some effects footage. Was did Hammer have any have any um, plans to the, oh that's being made we'll we'll certainly make it's not it's things. not recorded okay. it's not recorded because by this time I mean maybe they did have informal discussions as far as I know Quatermass Four quote unquote was only ever intended for the BBC if it was supposed to go to Hammer then it wasn't pursued at any length um, possibly because the distribution landscape changed again because around 1969 Hammer loses nearly all of its American finance completely and by 1970 it's kind of back in a position where it was in 1955 of having to rely on British finance again and it could be if they did have any conversations with Neil but they just felt that a production of that magnitude could not be sustained on a on a British only budget but I don't know this is again guesswork on my part. Uh, it's going back to an earlier bit so I might re-edit this as we go in as well but just something we didn't mention for the witches is the poster for the witches is on is on the set and therefore does that mean that Nigel Neal and Duncan Lamont 
exist in the Quatermass and the Pit universe. Oh, you're getting a bit of meta now, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Could Slatten meet Duncan Lamont? Of course, it's Duncan Lamont, isn't it? Yes, right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Duncan Lamont exists as an actor and as, <laughs> and, as, and, and as the guy who plays Slatten. Yes. I mean, this this wasn't this wasn't um, the end of Hammer's relationship with Nigel Neal, of course, uh, because he was he's working with the company. He's approached by the company. Uh, again in the 1980s. Had there been a second series of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense um, in the mid-1980s, it's likely, highly likely, I think, given the notes in the archive, that uh, Nigel Neal would uh, would have contributed to that. Yeah, he was I in think. place for it, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, right uh, towards the end of his life, uh, again, he was talking to Hammer. Marvellous as well. Uh, is there, we're going to have to wrap up in about two or three minutes, is there anything you want to bring in now, Howard? Um... What do you love about it the most? I think that's a nice wrap-up question. What do I love about it the most? I mean, I think the um, all of the Quatermass films were my introduction to Hammer when I was uh, a teenager, or possibly even a bit younger. I'm not sure seeing them on television. Um, I think Quatermass in the particular, in, in Quatermass in the Pit in particular, is a has something profound to say about the human condition. I think, and I think that. Uh, uh, I think Roy Ward Baker's very economical telling of that story with some um, uh, compounds that that series that 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 I think Roy Ward Baker's very economical telling of that story compounds the mounting dread very very effectively yes. I think and I think it's just a film that it stays with you forever well, well, it, it, Quatermass in the Pit has stayed with me forever I have never stopped thinking about. Quatermass in the Pit and what Nigel Neal is telling us in Quatermass in the Pit and this applies to the television version as well but it was the film version I saw originally and I think that it was the film version of Quatermass in the Pit that really woke me up to what a brilliant writer Nigel Neal was I completely agree, I'm still haunted as a child by uh, Barbara Murray's line when she quotes uh, from what she read in the newspaper after the, after the soldier sees the figure the figure was small like a hideous dwarf stayed with me for mm. decades now as mm. the most chilling line I've possibly quick edit, quick edit here is Barbara Shelley oh Barbara Shelley is sorry Barbara, do I do that again? I say Barbara Murray yes yeah. I said Barbara, not Barbara Murray as well is the line that um, Barbara Shelley uh, says when she reads uh, the newspaper report and the, after seeing the um, the soldier uh, sees the, the figure and she, she just quotes the figure was small like a hideous dwarf and that's that's a line that stayed with me decades now. I think it only remains to um, give a big thanks to uh, Marcus for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure for your time, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Birdcast was presented by John Deere and Howard David Ingham and engineered by Emma Cooper. We'd like to give special thanks for this episode to Sarah Rubin of the British Film Institute, Andrea Kinnear, and Toby Haydock. Thanks for listening. Yeah.